We are back. The topic is embodiment, and our guest today approaches this conversation through the lens of poetry. You will be treated to three poems, each dedicated to a body part or embodied curiosity. Sometimes simply changing the language can bring clarity. That's how poetry transforms the view of the ordinary. Isn't that after all what art does? Has us look at ordinary things in a different way? This conversation nourished us completely. We hope you will walk away from this episode noticing a bit more where you feel your life in your body. We will be providing simple practices to aid in the process of increasing awareness. Today, the practice is poetry. Welcome, Corey Finer. We're welcoming Corey Finer as our first guest for season two. Now, we will have already done one episode, um, and so you probably already know the theme, but the theme of this season is embodiment. And this particular set of episodes, last one and this one, are really about what is embodiment. So we invited Corey Finer to join us, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. Corey Finer is the Poet Laureate Emeritus of Bucks County, PA, and the author of the poetry collection Radishes into Roses, and the children's book Who Was Born at Home. She's an international performance poet and a slam champion with an MFA from NYU, called Wonderful by the New York Times and Absorbing by Backstage Magazine. Corey has won awards for her poetry, performances, and educational workshops. Widely published, she's a Pushcart Prize nominee and the former poetry editor for the Bellevue Literary Review. Currently, she's a homeschooling, gardening, cook from scratch yoga mama and founder of the Reembody Poetry Workshop, focusing on body image and somatic healing. I think we could do a whole season just on your bio alone. <laughs> we are Thank you. Just thrilled to have you, Corey. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. I love your podcast. Uh, you know, it's funny when we first we were kind of putting out some feelers, talking a little bit on social media about this is something we were thinking of doing. And you and Wendy Warner, who was a guest in our first season, the two of you were the first ones to kind of pop in and say, hey, this this is piquing my curiosity a little bit. I'd like to talk a little bit more, I'd maybe even be involved somehow. And then I discovered your re-embodied poetry on Instagram. And every day it's it's a gem. So I'm just curious, you know, what, as a poet, tell us a little bit of your history as a poet, not only when you started, but how you started and why poetry, and then maybe give us a little bit of um, a history of your trajectory to this re-embodied poetry. Thank you so much for asking that. Um, what immediately springs to mind is when I was nine years old, my best friend was named Yana Velez, and for my birthday, she gave me a poetry journal. She says, here's your journal. You can write stuff in it. I was like, like what? Oh, you can write pop. Okay. So I start, and it was beautiful. I mean, imagine this, like third grade New York City school, and you're given this like velvet journal with a unicorn on top. It was beautiful. And um, that same year, um, a woman uh, visited our classroom, and this is like third grade, a lot of school testing, and a lot of pressure starts, and selling your childhood things less carefree and she said poetry is not good or bad or right or wrong 
the point of poetry is to touch someone's heart or not. And I went, I'm going to be, I'm going to write poetry. And that was it. And it was like very soon after. And I tell, um, I spent many years teaching in schools and I tell the young people this, it's about connection. And, um, so I wrote not knowing what I was doing for many, many years. And I do believe when you look back on your life, you start to realize how many gifts you received. So, um, I always had a, a journal after that. And in high school, uh, the lunchroom, the lunchroom in New York City public schools was not exactly a, an easy place to be in the 1980s. And so um, I just wandered around and I didn't want to go in the lunchroom. And I looked up and I saw Poet's House. What's Poet? I love poetry. And I walked in. And then a few minutes later, uh, Lee comes in, who was the CEO or the executive director of Poet's House. And she's like, what are you doing here? And I was like, I don't want to go to the lunchroom. Blah, blah, blah. I love poetry and there's Anne Sexton. And, and she's like, well, you can stay here, but as long as you respect it. So this is how I got acquainted with Poet's House. And many, many years later, I ended up teaching there um, and becoming one of their poets in the branches. So that's kind of, when looking back, these are the things that kind of like kept saying, this is something for you. This is something for you. And I, I wrote um, for most of my life, was an English major, started publishing from there you know when you read wikipedia and you read the early life and it's fascinating and then you get to the filmography and you're not you're like okay 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 <laughs> it, it's kind of like that point so there was many other things that happened after that and i went in many different directions but it's always something i return to who are some of the poets who have inspired you that you kind of, you know, look to for as an anchor in this in this world or inspiration or just for pleasure? Mm. The first woman who um, first poet who pops to mind is Sharon Olds, because her poetry was so vulnerable. And at the same time, she's a metaphor queen. And she metaphor i do believe it's the language that we get to when we can't explain anything anymore you know notice even the quantum physicists get to this point where they're like it's like this i'm like okay so now the somehow the language of the souls is the language of poetry which is why i believe that so many people are drawn to it and why so many people return to it during the pandemic was like okay i need to connect to something larger so Sharon Old's work was vulnerable it was about her children about her husband about her body and I was um really connected to that um Naomi Shihab Nye who wrote uh, this beautiful poem kindness and what connected me to her is that I thought growing up that poets had to be unhealthy or dead and I met her at a poetry reading and she was beautiful and she had a braid. So I started wearing a braid. <laughs> and she was married and she had children and she was reconciling the two disparate parts of herself, one being, you know, Palestinian American and one being, um, you know, I guess, Anglo-Saxon American. And just the peacefulness in her work, um, it just gave me possibility. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And then Hafiz and Rumi and... Um, Omar Khayyam and Attar and a lot of the mystic poets uh, I read them regularly just to bring me to a um, just kind of to connect to my higher self if that makes sense it sure does <laughs> it sure you. does to connect to higher self and it's interesting that one of uh, the people who brought you into poetry also had poetry about the body 
which is uh, the poetry that you're going to share with us this evening, I am really drawn and wanting to hear the poetry about the skin. So we've talked a lot about the skin mm-hmm. in our first season. And I think it would be fun to have your poetry kind of be spread out throughout this podcast. Mm-hmm. Would you mind kicking us off with reading the poetry that um, the poem about skin? I would love to. Would you mind if I just tell you briefly how I started writing about the body? Please. Yes, Thank please you. Do. Thank you so much. Um, two years ago is when I started my at-home yoga practice. Um, and during you, I didn't realize I would have these somatic releases in my body. And then I would start spontaneously crying in the middle of like lunges and that things would be released from my hips. So a lot was happening um, in addition to meditation and studying nonviolent communication. And I met this group of women online and I said, you know what? I'm going to give a free poetry workshop. And since we're all doing yoga together, and one of the things that hit me in the yoga class was this constant looking at my hands and staring at them and being with them. And I was like, oh, these are my hands. And when they're holding you up in plank, it's a very different meaning than just typing on the computer. So I decided to just give this free poetry workshop and I taught um, a poem about the hands using other poets and we all started crying and none of us had really sat with our bodies in complete presence and not the whole body but a part and so from there it developed into a 10-week course on just the hands the feet the skin the thighs the tongue and um So after that, I was like, well, that's over. And I couldn't, I would not stop until I realized I wanted to personally connect with every part of my body. And skin, going back to that, is fascinating to me. I mean, it's the, it's the largest organ in the body, but it also is our identity. It's also what protects us. It's also what is so vulnerable and changes so much throughout our life and it so many things erupt through it you touched as you're preparing to read that to so many things that um, are important for me personally as well Mm. Uh, as a massage therapist as soon as you started talking about the hands and really noticing them connecting with them it brought back memories of you know being in massage school and really building the awareness of connection with others Mm. using my hands touching initially their skin so you know just in that one introduction of what brought you into poetry you Mm kind of clicked all my boxes (laughs) thank you thank you and one of the reasons that um the poetry workshop uh which will be launched uh probably next year and my poetry page called re-embody poetry workshop is because poetry is a physical art form and this is and and so it's really like i want to bring poetry it's a it's all of it it's mind it's body it's it's spirit but it lives in the body and i got a master's degree from nyu and we lived in our heads in our poems <laughs> and i needed that and i needed to be broken down i need to understand my craft i need to understand the fountain 
so that the water wouldn't just spill all over the place, if that makes sense. I had to learn how to sculpt and create these poems so they made sense. At the same time, I was slamming on the Lower East Side and I was like, what? Because <laughs> it lived in my body. And the ancient odes, Pindar's ode, they were all oral art forms. And some of the poetry rhythms and movements are based on the body and based on sounds. It's, it's fascinating. So I think in a time of massive realignment, it's like, okay, let us come home to ourselves. You touched on, again, everything we did in the first season. The koshas are the layers of our being. And so it moves from the physical to the energetic and the mental, and then the wisdom, the acquired wisdom that we, we get. And then it sort of moves into this bliss body. And, you know, the way that you were describing the different body parts and then describing um, poetry in the body and all the different ways that it manifests, it really, and then coming back to ourselves, that mm -hmm. is almost like fragmenting something to then put it back together. So re-embody, remember, putting things mm -hmm. back together so that we're integrated into this wholeness. Because I think part of this realignment that we are experiencing cosmically, individually, globally, is that we have forgotten. <laughs> and so we have to remember, um, go deeply. And But that there's this also reintegration because we can get so fixated on the fragmented pieces of ourselves that either we've disowned over the years, yeah. you know, and then to sort of reclaim them to create this wholeness. And so I don't want to keep riffing on this because we could go on for a long time, but let's get to your poem on skin. Sounds perfect. I, I would love to. Let's do that. Great. Okay. Skin matters. Skin remembers the story of every cut on my hands, every scar on my knees, face, chin, healed and healing. Skin knows kneeling in prayer to grow, to stretch, to bear arms and break open into suns. Skin remembers warm breath against breast, salty milk, sweet tears, embittered blood burning. Skin remembers the boy who licked its core and how it shook and yelled, no more, not him, not her, first time. It remembered to break open the bolted door, hurt, sore, running, skin, and the sigh of the lover licking its landscape, saying, you taste so good, skin, laughing, don't talk with your mouth full. Skin, my wool blanket, my patchwork quilt, Skin, my birch tree, forest floor, my skin, my forest flames burning skin, this skin now here, supple, soft, chapped, dry, hurting, healing skin with me, this life, this now skin wrapping the gift that is me is you skin calling us to hold ourselves until we feel just feel skin singing over city sirens steam pipes hissing touching sensing growing shedding no story no blame feel your skin it's ours this moment no shame skin alive engulfed inflamed skin remembers skin. Thank you. 
I don't even want to make any other sound. But I did. So we've broken the seal. <laughs> um, it's a podcast. Can't it feels talk. like there are about 30 different stories in that mm -hmm. one poem, at least. You know, Teresa and I, in, we were inspired for this season. We read a book um, that was a conversation between Stanley Kellerman and Joseph Campbell called mm -hmm. Myth of the Body, yes. Myths of the Body. And so the whole idea of metaphor and stories and what the body holds and all of that. And that the skin you talked about, you know, this identity piece. When we were talking about it last season, it was, you know, sort of this barrier and all of the things that you mm -hmm. say. But as we talked about identity, we sort of came to this idea that identity is all the things we are not. And so that the skin, it's waterproof. So when the water, the droplets, like it just rolls right off. All of these stories that um, are contained within the skin that you just presented, yeah, it, it's mind blowing. And I felt it in my body. Mm. Thank you. I felt it in my body as well. I've had a journey with my skin over mm. uh, the whole the last season, a journey of some skin cancers and surgery, a journey of a medication that was a uh, peeling of the skin on my face. You know, uh, I connected with this idea of snakes because they shed their skin and they have this rebirth. Yeah. Um, they come back anew. There's just so much depth to something that is our most superficial part of self. It's the yeah. thing that we put forward, but has just so much depth. And for me, you know, it goes even a little bit beyond there. Being a massage therapist, touch is my thing. Mm. The healing powers of touch and the skin has the most receptors and and sensory communicators so that when we engage in touch you know the 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 communicator is what the skin feels and you have covered it so beautifully mm. thank you it's a it's an interesting reclamation to get back into our bodies, but not as our identity, but as our stories and as our subconscious minds and what stories are they holding on to? What stories are our different body parts wanting to release? And so this, this skin one was definitely, it's all part of my healing yet transformation, meaning it's easy in poetry to kind of get stuck in the in the ditches of despair because it's it's it it can live there but to like go there and come back out and uh to really try to look at um these different parts on on, on multiple levels if that makes sense yeah it used to be um and i've loved i've been writing rhyme for many years i used to I even wrote to hallmark at one point when i was in college can i write for you and they said well we'll own everything you write and and i was like no thank you but part of my <laughs> defiance again right yes but part of my experience with poetry um over the years has been a bit of disembodiment it's been a sense of not understanding and feeling like that the poetry that I'm supposed to, and I'm doing loose quotes for those who are you know, listening and not seeing, this idea that poetry was this highbrow, something for the elite academics, 
I'm a bright person, but I'm no elite academic. And as soon as I tune out and don't understand something, like if I, I like looking up a word or two every few chapters in a book, it keeps my mind active and it keeps me present and, you know, learning from the context clues and all of that. Um, but if I am completely lost, then I, there, what is the purpose? It feels almost deliberately, <laughs> you know, sort of manipulative to, to do that. Your writing always makes me feel a little bit smarter when I'm done hearing it, but I also understand it. Like, I feel like because it lives in the body, because you have that relationship with your writing, I get to reflect that back to you by feeling it myself. And so when I can feel it and it makes sense in my body, or even if it doesn't, like something's going on, it's a mysterious sensation in the body, but it's a direct result of hearing your words, it gives me some place to start. You know, it's not just this heady thing, like you said, you know, sort of at NYU, um, two of our guests first season talked about their bodies for a long time. They just felt carried their brains around, you know, and uh, I think that's a common denominator for a lot of our guests and ourselves included until we discovered our bodies and this this wholeness that we can be. So I just want you to know how much I appreciate the the reintegration with poetry in terms of knowing that I can rise to the moment and meet it, but that I don't have to get lost in it and feel that it's for other people. Mm, thank you. Um, I actually am. Um, one thing I've decided to do is reclaim rhyming. <laughs> I like to rhyme. I rhyme very naturally. Mm -hmm. Have um, you ever read Calvin Trillin? No, but uh -huh. I, now, now I have homework. Calvin Trillin, I think he used to, was it the New York Times, or New York Magazine, or one of those, he used to, I wrote him a fan letter in rhyme in the 90s, <laughs> and I thought I was being all cute, you know, like the computers were, just, I found an image that I put on a piece of paper, and I wrote this huge rhyme fan letter, and it never got to him, and I had a friend in publishing, he's like, he's never going to answer you, he probably won't even read it. <laughs> he probably has that letter under his pillow now, you never know. <laughs> I, as I said, I went to, I got my master's degree at NYU. It was the only graduate school I applied for. I flipped a coin. I said, if I get into NYU, I will study poetry with Sharon Olds, Galway Cannell, Aga Shahid Ali. I mean, it was the top. Philip Levine. Um, gosh, who else? Marie Ponceau. It was wonderful. Or I'm going to go into publishing because I had a job in publishing and I loved publishing. Um, and I got into NYU and I got grants to be um, like a teaching artist. And that was what I did for 15 years. I went in and out of schools teaching, um, really, I wouldn't say teaching children poetry, but re using poetry as a tool for self-empowerment. Mm -hmm. There was a point I wanted to make. And then at night, I would go to slams, which you better believe you rhyme and you better believe you have to be strong and you better believe your rhymes aren't too long. You better believe you got, you know, you had to be really like that. And so here I am during the day, like doing surgery and poems. And then at night it's like, ooh. and I thought those were separate worlds, but I think that we can all agree that the illusion of polarities and dualities is just, it's so last century and let's just move on, you know, for a more heart space. Yes. And also the, as far as the accessibility, William Carlos Williams, Langston Hughes are two of my, two of the poets I look up to. And the way that I look up to Charlie Chaplin, you better believe he was uh, smarter than most of us, but you can be eight or 108. And I think there, there is a place for the surgical poems. I love those. I've written them. I wouldn't say they're good, but I can write them. 
but there's a place for this too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was just so much ah, that came while you were speaking and a lot of it came back to um, you talking about the stories the body holds. And it reminded me of a poem I read on a wall in a massage school, which kind of comes back to you cool. discussed. Yeah, it's an interesting poem. But it came back to you talking about your releases on the yoga mat, your emotional releases. And one of the lines, it was a, it was a poem that somebody had posted about the fascial system of the body. Mm. And the line in the poem was, I hide and hold your secrets and I release them when you are ready. And when you talked about your movement practice and the group of individuals that were examining their hands and it came to this place of an emotional release, it really did remind me of that mind-body-spirit connection or the holistic nature of the fascial system. And interestingly enough, um, now that they've called it a system, they've actually said it's the largest system in the body. It's our fabric form where we write those stories internally and hold on to them. And so listening to you has brought me back into that poetry um, that was so deep about the communicators that lie beneath the skin. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a book called The Body Doesn't Lie. I don't know who wrote it, um, but that that line stays in my head a lot. What are my hips telling me? Or how is it that um, three generations have this one particular quirk? It can't just be DNA. There's something going on that's being passed on to us. Yeah. We talked a little bit about that too, this inheritance. And in this book, the um, Stanley Kellerman, Joseph Campbell book, they talk about the inheritance, that some of it is DNA, but that the things sometimes we think are DNA are really sort of just observations, generational observations. My mother learned it from her mother, who learned it from her mother, who learned it from her mother. We just kind of keep observing the same things, but maybe those patterns are holding or um, ready to reveal something bigger than any of those previous generations were ready to look at you know, as we progress along this path of understanding that our body is actually telling us our stories, you know, it's holding it. But then every once in a while, you know, that colony of knots under my left shoulder blade is reminding me that I am, I am relinquishing my stress to my body rather than sitting in and meeting that stressful moment in the moment. As long as my shoulder's holding it, I can live a free spirited life, you know, until, (laughs) until my body begins to break down. Yeah. So it's, um, it brings me up to the, ask you as a poet and as a mom, as a New Yorker, as a human, as just a sentient being in the world, what is embodiment to you? I mean, we, we touched on it in the beginning just to kind of, it was very surface, but as you've read your poetry and it, it was about the skin, but it went really deep. It was, you know, below the lowest layer of the skin. Then we talked about fragmentation and integration, but if you were to, you know, repurpose the definition of embodiment at this point, what would it be? Give me a moment because I want to think about that and give a good answer. Um, Because I... And if nothing comes to you now, we can... Yeah, it is the... 
we've been in our heads for a long time and we've abused our bodies for a long time. It's institutionalized. And I believe that we have collective beauty, but also collective dysfunction and collective trauma. And as one of my mentors says, there's trauma with a big T and trauma with a little T. Could just be even just the whole birthing system alone. You know, our first impression is we are alone and we are not welcome. And it's like, whoa. So um, that can live in the body. But when I think re-embodiment, it is just that presence of giving yourself space. But also curiosity about the self, self-mastery, self-study. And self-love, that is not a manicure, you know? It's like, I'll love, love you know, or do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I love doing manicures only with my mother because it's a connecting thing. But what I mean is like the deeper self-love. Like I'm going to sit with this for a few minutes and feel these feelings mm-hmm. because yeah. thoughts are the language of the mind, which lives in the body, lest we forget. The body is the language, the um, feelings or emotions or energy emotions. And that is the body of, that is the language of the unconscious mind. And so I asked recently, well, what's the body language of the soul? And my answers so far are curiosity. I've asked people, (laughs) curiosity and joy. And then to me, it's poetry, which I return to as part of my dharma, as part of a service um, to just see if I could wake anyone up to themselves mostly myself actually so when it's the embodiment it's like this um this is not gonna sound good on a podcast but it's like oh right well what bring it all to bring it all all back together and to love yourself enough to sit with yourself and to sit with the 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 body sensations or energy and motion instead of just being like i'm so angry you didn't put those paper airplanes away it's like i'm feeling a sensation what is that sensation Oh, that's anger. I am not allowed to be angry. Yes, you are allowed to be angry. What does that feel like? You know, and to like just stop and have the conversation, which is not easy in in high pressure moments. So you can always revisit it later. It's never too late to revisit anything or heal. I don't know why we're raised to think everything's a finish line, but it just never ends. It's all Um, a journey. You said something. You said that you were really for your own awakening. But you are not alone. You are always reflecting back into the world, you know. So what you're doing here is you're reflecting for us and for our listeners, you know, what's already inside them. And so, you know, how grateful and how lucky are we to to have people around us, artists, you know, we're all creatives. And I think people forget that. But the artists around us who reflect back those things that don't fit neatly in a box or a body. Right. Yes, Teresa, I see. You had written that one of the things that you focus on is understanding. I think this is what you were just speaking to, understanding what our bodies are trying to tell us. And I have worked with many people, um, and usually people who find me, they find me because they're in some sort of pain. Mm. And they come to me for, you know, some resolution and a deeper understanding of where that comes from. And I really resonated with uh, this statement that you made, what the bodies are trying to tell us, because I would often tell my clients, we have to learn to listen to our body whisper 
so we don't have to hear it scream. Ooh, oh, that was good. That was really good. And that's where we take that time to sit with it and notice the patterns that are trying to communicate with us, which generally we're like, yeah, my back hurts a little bit, but I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do this, right? I'm going to, yep, pop some sort of a medica medication. And you had just talked about that, that maybe we are not as kind to the body that we have been gifted as we could be. Mm. That circles back around to, um, or segues possibly into, you mentioned wanting to hear the Bunyan poem. And this is the perfect time because we're about midway through. Perfect. And so let's, um, you know, talk about Sounds Bunyan. great. Well, Bloom, I, I've had this Bunyan, this, I mean, it's so big on my left toe um, since I had my first son and then it got bigger after my second son, my right toe a little bit. And um, I was baby wearing. Um, I was very much into um, being all in as far as my mothering. So I just, I carried them, I nursed them. They were heavy, very heavy. And there was definitely a lot of weight on me beyond just carrying them. And so um, it doesn't hurt. My husband doesn't mind. What's the big deal? Like I tried to heal it at first. I don't want to get surgery. I don't, I think we're still in barbaric stages of that. But when I was reading about it, this was a poem that wasn't like, oh, I'm going to write a poem by Bunyan. This was like, where do I need to sit today? And then when I started studying the Bunyan, it was connected to the throat chakra and the lump in your throat and all the words that you haven't said. And I immediately went, <gasps> and you know, when you feel something in your whole being kind of get that shiver, that is true. And uh, that's kind of where this poem came from, realizing it represented more than just that my mother has a, oh, my, I have one, you know, that it, it um, it's holding something for me that I didn't know about. Teresa, I saw you nodding when I said uh, the connection. Yes. Um, when I was doing my yoga therapy training, we did a lot of foot rolling. And my teacher, who was she's amazing Maria an amazing teacher and she was just so engaging and as she was teaching us to roll and perhaps having a, a change in that bunion she was talking about exactly that words that weren't spoken and she, you know she kind of joked a little bit like while I'm rolling my foot you know, that's what I didn't say to mom. And that's what I never said to dad. And so it was kind of interesting that she added that whole story component hmm. to the practice that we were doing to help us to really embody and understand how the body was holding some of those um, stories mm -hmm. because we weren't able to release them. We didn't verbalize them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know that um, this, I think, came when, oh, goodness. I'm, you know, I, I listened to your podcast where some people were like, I've been doing yoga for 25 years. I'm proud to say I'm like, I'm a newbie. It's like two years. But it was like um, the hummingbird. And it's like you're lifting up your toes. You're spreading your feet. And I'm looking down. I'm like, whoa, that's big. <laughs> and then when I, I studied the pun, and I just, I'm, I cried for myself 
in a really beautiful way. And I was like, oh, Corey, I'm so sorry that you held this for so long. Like, it's safe to come out now. And that's that's the hard part, I think, is um, it's really easy to externalize. But in, start of, in part of my, I've been studying nonviolent communication for the past two years or compassionate communication and understanding that we all lit, work with feelings and needs. I'm going to circle back around to the button, don't worry. But what hit me the most is I thought I would use the language the most towards other people. I would use it to with my father, I would use it with my brother or with my husband or mostly with my kids because I saw that I was hurt. they were being hurt by things that I didn't I didn't know why they were being hurt by things I was doing. So I wanted to really increase my self-awareness. And so I'm like, this is for them. And then in the coursework, I was like, oh, this is the language I use towards myself. Wow. And through my meditation practice, um, I've been able to hear it. And um, that's a relief, <laughs> you know, like the shadow work, like, oh, I don't hear all of it. I think it'll be a lifetime of hearing all these different voices or things. Uh, in the meantime, I just keep asking my body, like, do you want to tell me anything? So one of my CE courses, which is an ethics course, is called Conflict Resolution with mm -hmm. Self. And it starts yeah. with listening to our own self-talk mm -hmm. and recognizing that the words that we're using to communicate with ourselves may not be something that I would say to you or to Sherry or say outwardly. I wouldn't use those same types of sentences that sometimes were very um, negative and harsh in my own internal conversation, but I would never say that externally. Right. And we don't even know we're saying them to ourselves. That's that we're so used to it um, that when you finally hear it, it's like, oh, OK, now I can't be mean to you for busting you for using negative self-talk. I still have to be kind to you and say, it's OK. And even for those of us who practice this oneness, this reflection, this work, that we can separate ourselves every day when we're telling our loved ones how amazing they are, even when they're feeling crappy. And then when we're feeling crappy, it's just like, oh man, you know, I, I got to, you know, lose 10 pounds. I've got to do this. I've got like just coming down on, I would never talk to someone else the way I talk to myself ever. Mm. I mean, it would never occur to me. And it wasn't until I heard someone else frame it that way that I realized that's what I was doing. And so, you know, it's a little bit of fake it till you make it, just changing the language to interrupt that pattern of, and it, it's self-abuse in some ways. And, you know, if I, if I think about verbalizing some of the things I say to myself to others, like, oh man, like, who is that person? So mm -hmm. one of the first steps I would think in reintegrating this embodiment, this integration, this connecting from individual to universal and collective energies is to interrupt that that negative self-talk you know yeah. and may and sometimes a bubble bath will help and sometimes a bubble bath with a book of poetry helps even more and sometimes a good nap like it just you know whatever the tools are and to not minimize the things we do that may feel you know like ah, going for a massage going for acupuncture doing these things that feel good but it's never in place of the work, of the deliberate work. You know, acupuncture is great. Body work is great. It helps to release those energy things. 
But like you said, the thoughts are of the mind. They're also of the body that mm -hmm. until we can begin to manage the thoughts as well, all of the other stuff, it just feels good. And that's okay. <laughs> that's Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Bunions. 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 I'm going to circle back around to the poem. <laughs> I, decided, I decided to have fun with this one <laughs> and rhyme. All right. Oh, Bunyan. Oh, Bunyan, oh, Bunyan, as big as an onion bulging from my left big toe. Did you know you didn't have to grow and bear the weight of my martyr mom's self-hate, ragged, jagged teeth and hair carrying your baby in the lion's lair of long, long, sleepless nights? You didn't have to fight back tears, cover your ears to your son crying and crying without end, whispering, shh. and befriending the bend in your bones as if there was no other way. Oh, Bunyan, oh, Bunyan, as big as an onion bulging from my left big toe, did you know I once wandered New York City streets stomping in combat boots en route to nowhere and nothing? That I walked to work in three-inch heels, felt unreal clicking and clacking through Midtown's chronic frown until I became weighed down by all the words I did not say. Oh, Bunyan, my Bunyan, as big as an onion, you are the lump in my throat. You are a sacrificial goat. You are the sinking boat of not giving myself a break. Bunyan, I know you ache. Bunyan, you let everyone take and take. Bunyan, I am here now to support you back, cut you some slack, my extra bone, my extra bone. You are no longer alone. the end of that poem oh bunion <laughs> bunion bunion my onion oh gosh it's it rhymes but it's not rhyming thank you no I, I i really um as far as if i get as far as craft i really love internal rhymes mm -hmm. i think of them as almost monkey bars you know you see a very light child grabbing one bar and they just go from one bar to the next and it carries them through. When I do that, it has to be very intentional with a lot of effort. Um, and that's what I think internal rhymes do. Rhyming is a physical thing. I think we respond to it. It's how we remember things for thousands of years before things were printed. Um, it's fun to say and it's fun to hear whether, um, yeah. And it's, what's so interesting is being, uh, you, you know, you hear rhyming, it's like, it's either rap or Hallmark cards. Like, no, it's it's a tool, um, just like anaphora is. And anaphora is when you repeat the beginning um, the beginning words mm -hmm. of line after line. And then that's as old as, you know, it's in the Bible, it's in the Torah, it's in, in all religious texts. All the politicians use it. I'm not going to go into politics. It's like, <laughs> you know, because it's a return. It's like a spine of a book. Oh, bunion, oh, bunion, da, 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 bunion, da, so bunion this, oh, bunion that. So these are two. Um, one of the things I love about poetry is the, the I'm not a musician, but the, the percussions of our voices and the, the, the rhythms that we make or how soothing the voice can be, or just how soothing certain vibrations or certain sounds can be. I just, ugh, I just love it. I just want to squeeze it. <laughs> I was feeling that the first thing I thought was that was like a song. It was like a song without, it was melodious, but without melody. You know, it had that lilting quality that mm. the rhythm took you through, which just, I think is, is amazing. And um, I had something else I wanted to say, and now I'm forgetting about it, but that was, 
I, I could feel myself smiling the whole time listening, just, you know, feeling like, oh, my bunion. Oh, you know, oh, I'm gonna... never going to look at you the same again. <laughs> um, you remember in a moment, but I was going to say, oh, is that I'm working? I'm actually currently working on a spoken word album. Um, the two projects that three projects that I'm gifting myself is that I, I write every single morning. Those first 45 minutes of the day are mine. And I have to write fast and it has to be done. So it's like one draft, two drafts, three drafts um, before my children wake up. As you know, I've always homeschooled. Um, so it's not like, bye kids. Ah! You know, it's like, okay, that's what's, you know. Um, that uh, these poems, they call to be not just written, but to be spoken. And so all of my um, re-embodied poetry that either has a certain rhythm they are meant to be a little bit like a song. And, um, I, mm, and I do love books. I have plenty of books. I just didn't want these poems to live on a bookshelf. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to be something that you can just listen to while washing the dishes and listen to while taking a walk. Or you listen to just one and you connect to it or, you know, like a, a favorite old song. So one of my uh, colleagues is helping me out with that. So hopefully that will be coming out. I'm so excited to hear that it will be in spoken word. Sherry and I have talked about this before. Sherry actually gifted me one of my first poetry books. Mm -hmm. And poetry was very hard for me, as she had mentioned earlier, that I would read it and think, I have, what? it would just go right over my head. But listening to it in spoken word, mm -hmm. it is so much... Um, more powerful for me to connect to it, listening to you read and share it with us through your voice rather than me picking up your book and reading it, which would be great also. Yeah. Uh, it just lands so much more clearly into my understanding and being able to connect with the meaning that you are um, sharing. So thank you for, for making it a spoken word um, offering, because I can't wait. Thank you. Well, I know when Rupi Kaur, she came out, she went right to audiobook. And I have found myself an audiobook fanatic and a podcast fanatic. I just, I love it. And that's why when you said like, what sense brings the most, what was the question for you? One sense that taps your memory. The first sense was sound. For me, sound is so important because I believe that was our, um, our first language. I believe that's how we got a lot of our thoughts or conditioned thinking. And, um, and that's what I've been doing and using in order to reshower myself with, with, new, <laughs> whoops, with new language and uh, with new words. So I'm really, really, really um, excited. Like we just got started going through all of the poems. He gave me some great feedback. So um, I'll let you know when it comes out. There, uh, do you want to, it doesn't have a working title. Is there anything we should be putting out into the universe yet? The main thing to put out into the universe is just um, right now I'm, I'm, I'm kind of just landing everything on Instagram. So um, just like subscribe to my Instagram and I'll let people know what's going on. I have a website also, coreyfiner.com. Um, you can also get through to me through there. So it's more like keep everyone posted. Um, I'll be teaching an amazing workshop about the body and this album will be coming out. And I just don't know when yet, but it will be, I promise. And the universe will make sure that it's in divine timing. It'll be I think so. I think so. At first, I was very much like, it should come out by this date and it should this. And I was like, you know what? I'm just, 
it will come when it comes just like everything else have yeah yeah so thank you listening and learning about the body for i mean i have I'm a body worker. I've been to mm. research congresses. I've listened to scientists talk about the body, researchers, my teachers, but to learn it again in a, from a poetic standpoint, I think is, I'm just so excited. I can't wait. I'm, I'm curious. I love learning. I love learning about the body, but I have to say, this is going to be the first time Although there's a poetry to much of what I've learned, when you really study the body, it has its own innate poetry yeah. on how it works, how all the parts are connected, the synchronicity of all of our systems. But then to hear it in spoken word in a poetic offering, I think is going to just take it even deeper into a different level of understanding and well, that's what we're talking about, an embodiment of the, what, what I'm learning about the body. Thank you. The, the intention really is like, it's like um, there's a myth of Janus. It's like the two faces and the constant tension, the yin and the yang. It's the, it's, I'm trying to combine an incredible amount of information in a very, with as <laughs> in the shortest way possible not that i don't love long epic poems like um you know leaves of grass or you know walt whitman work but that's why i'm also doing the research and the sign like you know the 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 science behind it and what's amazing is the more scientific i get the more i get into energy the more i get into that whoa the more i get into the actual moment that causes a poem which is like this complete and utter presence and that's, that's kind of what I'm like, I'm here, you're here, and I, I really, um, I just want to connect. Mm -hmm. And that's what the poem is trying to do, um, kind of in one or two pages. And in many ways, it feels like, you know, whatever self-healing and self-awareness the poems may reflect. One of the questions we asked in the intake, and you said you'd like to go deeper into it, was this idea of cultural embodiment. Mm -hmm. What do we mean by that? And it seems to have come up in different ways in the conversation so far, you know, even on some one level, it's just about connecting the individual to the collective so that we sense that, you know, we are not separate, we're interdependent beings who rely on each other, even if we don't know each other, there's a sense of, of wholeness. But there's also, you know, you, without getting political, but we know the body is political. We know that we can't really separate the koshas. We can't separate our energy from the physical, the mind from the body. We can't really separate, you know, the, the history of, our, of human beings from the experience of being alive in a body today. And what, you know, we know that, you know, nations are built on colonization and on, you know, on the backs of others and on on um, creating social constructs that create hierarchy so that some feel higher than the other, better than the other. And the result of that in groups of people is that they begin to feel disembodied from the culture in which they live. And so that was pretty much, you know, the, the starting point. And I think, you know, I'm Jewish. I know you are too. We're less than 1% of the world's population, less than 1%. And even though there's, you know, and I don't want to get into the whole sort of history, you know, there's you know, conflicts and things all over the world that, yeah, we should address at some point. But in the context of embodiment, you know, living in the diaspora, living outside of, you know, any kind of cultural container, but this idea that how do we come back to ourselves 
without disowning the other parts. So the American part, the, the female part, the, the parts that like our hands, like we can separate the parts of our identity and how we see ourselves as much as we can fragment the physical body. So with all of that fragmentation, how through poetry, I would think is one beautiful means to draw those energies together and to remind that, um, I, I'm just going to... No, no, it's absolutely, I hear what you're saying. It's how to, I mean, they say that trauma lives in the body for seven generations. Mm. And um, my stomach, and, it, and it's passed down they. This is what I've read. It's really helped me a lot. It's right here. Mm. In the womb. She's, she's motioning to her belly. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm okay. touching my belly. Um, <laughs> Lower Dantian. Which is interesting for me because um, as a fairly slim decently athletic woman i've had diastasis recti and stretch marks since my second child and it has been so painful for me to look at myself to see this tear and it's very much like a tear that several other body family members have and i know a couple years back i was like how did this start living on me i have a very different body type than them very different I take more after my father's side, not this side. And so it started to occur to me that it was beyond just that I didn't put belly balm on my belly during pregnancy. And it was beyond a, a C-section that was gotten. It was something deeper. Mm-hmm. You know, in my meditation practice, Deepak Chopra said, the core of my being is the ultimate reality. And I was like, I haven't looked at my core in about a year. You know what I mean? So I better start looking at, at, at every core of um of my being um so i think and and when the thing about ancestral trauma it's like i think it's i've been i think it's time we honor it with grace and with gratitude thank you so much for trying to keep me safe it's time to move on and it's like a little bit of a morning and i've definitely had moments when i've talked to my body parts and i've talked to my grandmother in my mind and my great grandma my great great grandmother and i've just said thank you for the strength that you've given me the yiddish word the chutzpah <laughs> the tenacity this part that hurts still i'm okay with letting it go and and hopefully my grandchildren won't have that so it's like it's a tenuous thing, a bit like a funeral when even though someone's in like 103, it's still sad, yeah. <laughs> even though it's their time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I will often talk to my clients about speaking to your body and asking you questions. What are you asking me for? What would you like to me- like for me to do for you or with you? So to have that conversation you know, it kind of formulates where the thought process is going to go because we have to verbalize a question of something that maybe we quite don't understanding, don't understand from the sensation. And, you know, we were talking about cultural embodiment and the body. And again, anybody who's listening knows where I'm going to go. I, from a poetic standpoint, think that fascia and how it acts in the body is a metaphor for how we can um, organize a community, organize a collective, Mm -hmm. because it is the part of the body that holds us together. It 
unites every single thing in our body, but it also separates it and gives each individual part its own space. It's called the great communicator. Mm -hmm. If we could communicate externally as well as this communicator that houses our sensations commutes, communicates internally, that would be a real step forward for the collective. It's the organ of sensation. And it has the ability to maintain its structure in an environment that's constantly changing and constantly moving. But my favorite statement is that fascia deforms and reforms based on our request without bias. These are the things that we're looking for in this collective healing is to be able to have this deep listening to tap into our sensations, to listen to the requests, and then to reform in a um, much better way. And our body is designed to slide and glide, but when it's injured, it sticks and it restricts. So when we use this as our poetic step into how our body functions, Maybe that is the same principles that we can take forward, uniting a community, but yet giving it space for individuality. Absolutely. I really think that in this next movement that we're already in, it really is we go deep within to go deeper without. So we can understand. So there's no disconnect. I I used to go to so many, I grew up going to protests and I remember once going to something that was anti-war and then people were polluting and I was like this doesn't connect or I saw myself at Earth Day I volunteered when I was like 15 to help with Earth Day in Central Park and I'm smoking a cigarette I'm like this doesn't connect and I recognize that so it's like this deep 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 connection within understanding that maybe we actually don't break maybe we can bend maybe we don't have to be so rigid maybe um, that we can all understand each other's physical reality and then connect in the spirit instead of saying, well, it doesn't matter what you look like. It does. <laughs> you know, the physical reality is real. When you have a, once you have a physical ailment that has gotten to a, um, I mean, gosh, just look at the level of, of, of um, sickness we have. I think we're getting to a, to a critical mass. I was also trained to be um, a holistic health coach. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, I was in the schools so much working to help young children heal through poetry. I couldn't ignore their physical reality. So that's what led me into um, to health coaching as well. So I love what you were saying, Teresa. It really resonates with me that it's not the self, it's not self-indulgent to sit with your body and um, so I'm adding the word self-indulgent, ask it what it wants. It's part of the work of connecting like our collective fascia because we're here we really are all all connected we come from the same stuff we're made of the same stuff it just looks a little different on this planet how it's configured we hold contradictions in our bodies too like you were saying you know smoking tobacco at an earth day thing you know might be a little out of alignment but we can't really find our alignment until we recognize we're out of it and have to kind of 
return to some some place because you know they say if you're alive long enough your spine is going to get out of alignment but then it'll click back in and you know the vertebrae they move they they go in and out it just wear and tear on the body but to also not be so rigid with ourselves in terms of our own contradictions you know when it moves in from contradiction to hypocrisy it's a, another conversation because mm -hmm. um, i think there's also judgment involved there and other other things we are coming up on the hour oh give you time to read your mysterious poem also to to give you the time and space if there's anything that you really wanted to put out to say to you know that whoever's listening out there Corey Finer's got the stage and you know say what you want to kind of I don't I don't like nice neat ribbons maybe a nice frayed ribbon tie it up and then read your mystery poem sure sounds good uh, I'm called to read the mystery poem first this was the first poem uh, that um, that I wrote, that it was like, oh, Corey's back, the poet's back. And um, I didn't know I was going to write this one, but it was just like, oh, I'm just done with this aspect of myself. And I called it, so, uh, yeah, I'm just going to read it and then I'll talk about it. It's called So What? And this was before I started writing all the body work. There must be something I didn't see that now I see. My thighs are not fat, my stomach is not flat, and so what my heels are chapped wood and I got wrinkles above my lips. So what I hear a crack when I round my left hip. I got a grace that comes from nowhere my family knows. I must have something inside of me that glows. I am standing at the head of the ship, my arms back, my head flowing, my heart showing. So what? You can see the veins through my thighs. So what? My eyelids sag above my eyes. So what? My hair has thin, my hair is thin. Where have I been? Apologizing for my existence has been my only sin. There must be something I didn't see that now I see. Damn it, I am here. I am me. I had to throw the paper down at the end of that please you didn't see so that poem was like this release i don't know if everyone does it but i have spent most of my life picking myself apart beating myself up i didn't realize that i was trying to protect myself that if i beat myself up no one else will i got it covered you don't have to say a thing not being honest with myself not seeing myself and that I'm proving, I mean, the brain likes to be right, at least the ego does, and proving to myself that I am not lovable, that somehow I'm so special that the rest of you all can be lovable, but I'm not. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if I tried to start proving I am lovable? And I started looking for evidence. So it's like after listening to like some Eckhart Tolle um, talk where I was like, whoa, 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 brain wants to be right, okay. I'm gonna start trying to prove I'm lovable. And I worked with my negativity bias. We all have the negativity bias. Is this poison? Is that poison? Are they safe or not safe? And I said, I'm just going to try to crowd that out with positivity bias. When you're, uh, as a health coach, I never told anyone what to eat. I just tried to give them a little more good stuff, a little more good stuff until they're like, I want the good stuff. So I was working on crowding out the negativity bias and I started to find evidence of all these things, all these gifts, even a book given to me or my child hugging me, I was not receiving love. I would be hugged and I wouldn't hold it. Do you know what I mean? When someone hugs you and you're like, ah, oh, 
and you hug them back and you're not like, oh, thank you for that hug. I feel so much better. Or thank you for the hug. You're my teddy bear. Was, wow, I'm hugging you and you hugging me. And we're two human beings, sternum to sternum on this planet together. This feels great. And I'm not going to run away with all of my to-do lists. And when I wrote this poem, it was like, so what? Let's say I'm, let's say I do have these flaws, right? Am I any less lovable than anyone else? Yes, I'm aging. Yes, there's my hair is different, but it's like I can't keep walking through my existence apologizing for everything. And I think a lot of us, it's like we're either oscillating between like oppressor or victim. And it's like, let's just stop saying we're sorry for everything or stop saying it's your fault for everything. And just like, so what? Like, we're here. That's brilliant. And it's such an important self-inquiry to sit with. Because whether it's the feeling of being unlovable or some other self-deprecating narrative that we say to ourselves, Teresa and I were talking about this also about embodiment. And one of my stories, I had a big nose. I had my nose done when I was 15. I'll say it out loud. I had it fixed. My dad was a psychiatrist and he asked me, do you think having your nose done will make you happier? And I said, no, I'm a happy person. I think it'll help my insides look more like my outsides or my outside look more like my inside. I think if I had said I thought it would make me happier, he wouldn't have allowed it. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that I was already happy, but so I was a happy kid who was also teased, who learned how to use humor as a deflector, a distraction, um, so that I didn't have to take a deeper look in myself. I could take all the teasing and be a part of that. I could bully myself. I could be a part of the oppressor on me because it, it allowed me also to be right. And one of the other things we discussed last season was this question, and I was saying it as if it was a reality, but I think it's more of a question. Can one be right and curious at the same time? I don't know. Maybe theoretically, but if you're digging your heels in, I'm right, there's no room for curiosity because you're already right. Why would you have to know anything more? But anyway, uh, that's just kind of what that brought up. Yeah. Uh, and we'll talk about the diastasis later. I also went through that and it's, it's hard. It's hard. Thank you. Thank you. I know um, Byron Katie, what you just wrote, she um, has this one phrase. She calls the work the work. Mm -hmm. And it's like in the moments of this, of, of perceived despair, when you're feeling all these sensations and they're aligning with stories of like, how will I do this? You know, and I don't mean that like in a, in like, um, like, a, like a Disney sort of way, but there are moments where it's like, I don't know if I'll make it through this moment. Mm -hmm. And it, can, it feels very, very real. She says, ask the question, is it true? Is it really true? And I have found that curiosity to be very kind. And I've been, I've been working, this is my goal. <laughs> my family is very excited about this, is to not be defensive anymore. To be defenseless, to surrender, and to be curious and not to be scared to ask questions. And I think when we talk about cultural embodiment, if we can ask ourselves a question, what is my what is my skin saying? What is my fascia saying? What is my heart saying? Um, why is it angry people get heart conditions? That's kind of weird, you know. And and to go deeper. Uh, wait, there was there was a moment that we can engage again in civil, conscious conversations and allow ourselves to feel uncomfortable. We're really, um, you know what I'm saying. It's not easy to be in conflict. That's natural. It's the violence that is the aberration of that. And so that's that to go within 
to go without. And part of that self-acceptance, easier said than done. That's why it is a practice, not uh, a finish line. I think this is a nice place to call it a, a full circle, at least for now. We can have this conversation again. We can revisit at some point. We would love to, to talk with you more because Corey, you really, your writing and your insights and just your the means of your communication is so, it lands. I, I didn't get a hint of defensiveness. Of course, we're not, you know, being antagonistic, but I don't think, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I always feel from you this sense of openness and um, willingness to be in relationship and in that moment. So it's, it's just such a, a wonderful thing that you said yes to come on and talk with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for asking me. It's been an honor. It has been fascinating and I love and appreciate what both of you are doing and um, not just because it's fun, but also it's just a service mm -hmm. to, I've been listening to your different interviews, um, the insights, the questions, the, the lightness, the humanity and the presence. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, you added all of that. <laughs> Thank you. Today. Thank you. Thank I appreciate you. that. We touched on so much in this episode. Thank you, Corey, for your wisdom, humor, and poetry. This piece of the embodiment puzzle fits snugly into its place in the bigger picture. Join us next week when we examine how archetypes and patterns fit into the conversation about embodiment. How we can recognize when we're in a holding pattern, when we feel ready to move forward, and how embodiment can be a tool for advancement. We will also take a closer look at how knowing our archetypes can be a great assist on the road to becoming more embodied. Thank you to Judith George, our editor, to Keith Kenny for the original music, and for Cindy Fatsis for the beautiful photography and for seeing us as we see her. Until then, she is Teresa Tobin Macy. And she is Sherry Sadoff-Hank.